0: I absurd but, but I walked all around here. you Don't expect any answers from me You wouldn't understand anyway Barbara you saw me Yes You see what you've done It's an illusion it must be You should never have come here this, this is a trick It is no trick young man You both forced your way into the ship I did not invite you I see no reason why I should explain anything.
1: So, welcome to the episode zero of Who Worth <laughs> Watching, the unaired pilot. We're covering the unaired pilot of Doctor Who today, which is appropriate because depending on how things go, this may or may not be our own unaired pilot. <laughs> We'll introduce ourselves in a bit, but first I want to talk about the purpose of the podcast. There are lots of existing Doctor Who podcasts, more than I can count, so why should we do another one? One of the things that I found years ago when I started a Who Worth Watching blog which my co-host, I think, was about the only reader of, (laughs) was that the problem is when you become a Doctor Who fanatic and if you've spent a chunk of your life watching the show and reading about it, you start focusing on things that nobody, no normal person cares about, right? So, literally, there are podcasts I listen to where they talk about what the production code was for the show, who the third cousin of the grip was and how they were in Zed Cars, which was a famous British show, et cetera. But if you're just a normal person who's curious about the history of Doctor Who and would like to see some early stuff, but want to avoid the bad stuff, and you know, it was a cheap show occasionally that had some bad periods, but also had some amazing stuff. So if you just want to know about the good stuff, There aren't really resources just to be a consumer advocate to say, hey, here's the stuff to look at and here's the stuff to ignore. And so that is the purpose of this podcast. To me, the rule is if you were in the middle of watching this Doctor Who episode and a good friend of yours walked into the room, would you invite them to watch it because it's really cool? Or would you scramble to shut off the TV before they saw what you were watching because you were too embarrassed? (laughs) Uh, See, that doesn't
2: work for me because anybody who would take the time to visit me already knows. I mean, a a cranky old man yelling at high school teachers is the least weird thing they're going (laughs) to see. But, But still, I get the general gist of it.
1: Yep. And also, I can provide context for anything that would be helpful to know to enjoy the story. And you hear Guy there. So since I am corrupted, because I've spent a chunk of my life watching Doctor Who and reading too much about it and getting into production codes and all the rest of that, I've asked Guy to be part of this, to be the more or less normal person (laughs) who can give a normal person's reaction to whether the show is actually worth watching. So with that, uh, we're going to do my quick history of Doctor Who and then ask Guy for Mm -hmm. his. I started watching Doctor Who as a teenager in the 80s. When Tom Baker was a doctor, so he was my original doctor, people tend to have their their doctor in the U.S. And so this was a period when you saw it only if your local PBS was showing it. And then we had VCRs at the time, so you could record it if you were doing that, but you didn't have any other way to see it. So you only saw the episodes that you happened to catch, or if you could get back home from school in time or whatever. So you might see part of a story and never see the other part, or it might be years before you saw the other part of the story. So watching Doctor Who was a very weird experience back then, Mm -hmm. and people who got obsessed about it would spend a huge amount of their time collecting videotapes, trying to find a lost episode, getting together in clubs to watch these things, et cetera. I didn't go that far, but I was a fan that could only see it whenever it happened across it on television. A couple of times in my life that have been down times, Doctor Who has actually been a positive thing because it was something I could spend time watching that was just for me and kind of gave me something to focus on that could take my mind off of some things that I wasn't too happy about. So it's, it's definitely been threaded throughout. A few years ago, I bought DVDs for almost the entire series. At the time, you couldn't get them any other way. Now, as we'll talk about, fortunately, they're actually easy to get because BBC has BritBox in the US, BritBox.com And you can go there and subscribe, and you have access to everything, even more stuff than I have. The advantage I have with my DVDs and Blu-rays is that they have a bunch of extra material on them, much of which isn't available anywhere else, documentaries, interviews, et cetera. So being who I am, I spend a lot of time watching through those. So with that long extended history, Guy, what is your exposure to Doctor Who, if any? (laughs) The first exposure to Doctor Who that I can
2: recall was in the 80s when I was in high school, and a friend of mine, bright, funny guy, one day he came into school wearing a long, hideous scarf, and I asked him about it. He explained that it was from Doctor Who, and I think I may have heard of the show at that time. He proselytized it and told me how much he liked it, and I never watched it. You know, And over the years, I never really felt much urge to watch it because, you know, it sounded like a cheap British show about a guy flying around in a police box with tacky-looking robots.
1: I think you got a pretty accurate <laughs> impression, <of him>. actually. <laughs> never really just
2: felt like must-see TV, but then you did that blog a while back. I did enjoy reading what you had to say about the episode. So that piqued my interest a little more, though never quite enough to get me to go and actually check it out. So I am more or less a virgin to Doctor Who, aside from having watched this unaired debut episode last night.
1: Well, that's perfect then. So we have the contrasting views here, and we'll see how that goes. I'm not even sure how long ago it was we got to know each other. Late 90s, probably. 99 or 2000. That wow, makes... that long. So we're talking <laughs> 20 plus years. Yep. Yeah. And we originally made some hobby games together. And then over the years, we played games together. So the next obvious step is to start a podcast. Yeah. And, we, and I should mention, we live in very different parts of the country. So we mostly have been interacting online for the last 20 years. Yeah. Okay, well, let me talk a little bit about the unaired pilot. It's it's kind of an unusual situation where they did this whole episode starting this whole new thing that was intended for kids. As we say, they never aired it. And it was done by a couple of people who were very unusual at the BBC. So the producer of this was Verity Lambert. She was in her, like, early 20s and a woman. So that was extremely unusual to have a female producer and to have someone that young. And the director of the first episodes was an Indian guy named Warren Hussein. Having a female producer and an Indian director on this show were bizarre things. People at the BBC weren't particularly interested in the show. The guy who is now in charge of this sort of show at the BBC came up with the idea. But even though he was in charge, the rest of the BBC was not interested and disrespected it and didn't give them the time of day. They did this pilot, and it was considered a disaster, but the head of the BBC area that they were in gave them another chance, and they did it again, and then Doctor Who went from there, and we'll watch the other one next time. With that, let's get into it. When we start out, we have these opening credits. Now, I have a big emotional reaction every time I see that and hear that music. Just from cultural exposure, do you have a sense of that guy, or is it just another TV show opening?
2: You know, I've probably heard the theme music once or twice in my life. It doesn't stick in my head the way, like, the Jeffersons or something <laughs> like that does. Well, we're It's a fairly new experience. I, I thought for the early 60s, the visuals were kind of neat. I'd like to know actually how they did those. With it. it looks kind of like a, I don't know, fluid gushing out of a trench or into a trench. Or, I don't know. Interesting visuals, although they reuse those visuals about a minute before the end of the episode and drag it out a bit. Yeah. But as an opening sequence goes, fair enough. Yeah.
1: What's amazing about the visuals, again, for this children's show... Verity was interested, I think, in avant-garde things. And those visuals were unprecedented and they came up with new techniques to do them. So they were literally taking the logo for the show and using the logo as a seed for coming up with those images. Oh, it was like a feedback effect. Yeah, exactly. They were using a feedback kind of thing to do that. Similarly with the music, which is electronic, very modern music at the time. And there's a whole story there because there's a woman named Delia Derbyshire who really came up with that. But the rule at the time was that the head of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop would be credited with any work they did. So he got the credit and Mm. he got the money for the royalties for this. Oh boy. And he felt bad about that because he knew that Delia had really done the work And so, to my knowledge, he gave some or all of the royalties he got to her and always always deferred to her as the creator, even though as a legal requirement on all the shows and everything, he was credited. Huh. And that music theme, they still use it today. I mean, they've modernized it and altered it. In my opinion, it tended to get worse rather than better. But (laughs) just that first few seconds of the opening theme is pretty amazing. Again, for a kid's show in 1963... If you think about what kid shows were that we watched here in the US, <laughs> there were nothing. It was, you know, the banana split gang and Tra-la-la-la-la-la-la-la,
2: that sort oh, of thing. Yeah. There was there was nothing like this. The electric company had some good bits in it. The opening sequence was okay, I thought. And I thought the first scene was good because it was kind of evocative. You, know, you see the Bobby in the dark mm-hmm. night, and you, know, you think, oh, about 30 seconds, you're going to find Jack the Ripper's next victim. Mm-hmm. That's not what happens, of course, but it sets that mood for it the start. Kind of liked that.
1: So, yeah, we have an English policeman, a Bobby, walking through a very foggy night in a junkyard and comes across a police box. The blue police box is so associated with Dr. Who now, it's really hard for us to understand what it would have meant to a kid in England at the time, because they saw them all over the place. So the whole idea then was that that was a very common thing, where now it's an oddity that is completely associated with Dr. Who.
2: Yeah, They have a similar thing if you play the game L.A. Noir throughout Los Angeles, you see these blue game well boxes, they're called, but they're not walk-in boxes, they're just a little telephone on a pole. Mm. Uh, but it's, uh, I think, the s- same idea.
1: They do a close-up there of the little sign that was on on the police boxes, and it's like free and immediate answers to your questions. <laughs> it was a little, <laughs> it was like a service or something that's kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. So we go right from there to a school, and we meet the teachers, the Barbara and Ian. And they immediately start talking about this student,
0: Susan. Oh, I had a terrible day. I don't know what to make of it. You know, what's the trouble? Can I help? Oh, it's one of the girls, Susan Foreman. Susan Foreman. Oh, she your problem, too? Yes. And you don't know what to make of her? No. How old is she, Barbara? Fifteen. Fifteen. She lets her knowledge out a bit at a time so as not to embarrass me. That's what I feel about her. She knows more science than I'll ever know. She's a genius.
1: Watching this episode, it feels like she's going to be the center of the show. I mean, it's, the episode is named after her by calling her an unearthly child. And they put so much focus on all of this and her knowledge and her oddities and everything. And an unfortunate aspect of the show we'll see in the next few episodes is that that immediately goes away and they just start treating her as a teenage girl who does a lot of screaming. Uh. The actress was not happy about that. And again, we, we will get into that. But the whole idea originally was taking from the Avengers that she was going to be this kind of sexy, strange woman at the center of things. The other thing I wanted to mention, it was a little bit
2: of that put in just for characterization to emphasize how alien she was, where she's got an equation to solve. Presumably it's solvable because the teacher gave it to his students. I'd set the class a problem with A, B, and C as the three dimensions.
0: It's impossible unless you use D and E. D. D and E? Whatever form. Do the problem that's set, Susan. You can't, Mr. Jettison. You can't simply work on three other dimensions. Three of them? Ah, uh, time being the fourth, I suppose. Mm. Then what do you need E for? What do you make the fifth dimension? Space.
2: I understand why they did that to you know, show that she was had such a otherworldly advanced thought process and so on, but it's basic math. You don't need two other variables. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know what they were going for there, but she was getting hysterical because the teacher wasn't presenting things the way that she wanted. And they show multiple of that. And for someone who's supposed to be this intriguing character who's going to be an important part of the show, why they were having her get so upset because the teacher didn't present the problems the way she wanted and she would just go off on them was was a little odd. And then you have this immediate interesting thing again for a kid show, which is that Barbara the teacher, is worried that it seems like Susan is living with some old guy or something and like, what's going on with that? And she has been trying to investigate it and wants Ian to, to help her find out what's going on. So we have a kid show in 1963 starting out with some sort of disturbing implications. <laughs> <laughs> she does
2: say from the outset that she, Susan, she had said that the man was her grandfather. hmm but then she had gone to the place to check it out and found only the junkyard there. So that right, was right. really, really suspicious.
1: And it's funny because the, the reason they made her a granddaughter in the story was to address exactly this. Oh, wait, we have this old guy traveling around with this young woman. We don't want there to be any questions about that. So let's yeah. make her the granddaughter. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> so there's this whole portion of school and then Barbara and Ian going to the junkyard to try and find her. And they're overlapping scenes from the school with them getting in a car and going to the junkyard. And we see something that is just hard to even to understand what's going on today, which is, this is all live. This is effectively a play. So everything you're seeing is done in real time. They will do these weird things where the teachers are in this car, but they're doing a scene at the school. So you won't see the teacher. You'll see like Susan, and you'll hear the teacher talking. Well, that teacher is sitting in the car uh. talking but they're making it seem like they're in the classroom. When you start to realize this was all live and you look at it, you realize these acrobatics they were doing. And literally when they would then go from a school classroom scene to the car, what was happening on the other set is all the students are running around to another room so they can then do a different scene at the school. So it's kind of amusing what was involved at the time. It was quite a while before they did taped stuff. But they weren't broadcasting it live because this was the unaired pilot, right? So, right. They, yeah, and, that's right. They, they were videotaping it, but it was very expensive to edit or cut. So the rule was that you could do three cuts in an episode huh? and everything else just, you just had to go with it. And that's why when you see certain mistakes or an actor flubs a line, they just go with it because uh-huh. they get, they're only allowed to have three cuts. All be done. Okay. I think actors would develop strategies where if they were really unhappy with something and they didn't want it to be part of the show they would do a really big screw-up so that the <laughs> production would have no choice but to do a cut. <laughs> ah,
2: that's thinking. <laughs> Very good.
1: Yeah, so so again,
2: just a whole different time. One thing I noticed is that there's a, a couple minutes' worth where the noise the TARDIS makes is remarkably annoying. It's just, <laughs> it's constantly there, and it's not quite to the point that it drowns out everything, but it's just grating.
0: Shut the door! What are you doing? Young man, come back!
2: It seems like a couple minutes. It's probably not that long, but it's just super loud all of a sudden and stays that way interminably. I guess they couldn't cut it out based on what you've said, so (laughs) They, they went with it.
1: There is something good about having this kind of odd sound in the background when they're inside the TARDIS, but Mm -hmm. obviously you don't want it to be annoying. But speaking of all that, so what did you think of the general production values of this episode? Overall, I didn't really have much to complain about. I noticed things
2: here and there, things that probably, if you're watching in 1963 and a 12-inch screen, wouldn't have been so pronounced. Like when you're inside the TARDIS, you'll see one wall. It actually has these big three-dimensional holes in it. Another wall that looks very much like it is actually a backdrop, just a painted backdrop.
1: Yeah. So those are called round bills. I think that was a brilliant way on their part to cut costs by not having to have custom made walls all around. And I'm sure on, like you say, on a tiny black and white TV, you probably could not see the difference between the thing that was just painted and the thing that was an actual wall. I'm a little harsher than you on this. They have a lot of stuff that's out of focus. They have shaky cameras, not where they're trying to do cinema verite, but where the Mm. camera operator just couldn't get it quite in the right place and it's moving all over.
2: I think I did notice one instance in the, and maybe inside the junkyard where it looked like the the cameraman might actually have bumped into something or, you (laughs) know, it just sort of joggled for a second there.
1: There was at least one where there was a boom mic showing, which is tough in live TV because it's hard to avoid. Oh, Sure still within the context of this being live and and them having, these were really, really huge cameras, right? I mean, literally a big part of planning an episode like this, they had a person who almost their entire job was to map out where the cameras would be and where the huge cables for the camera would go, because they always had to worry about where the cables were and if people were going to trip over them. Or if one camera needed to move to another place, but there was going to be a cable on the floor, they wouldn't be able to do it. So if you take that into consideration, They actually do some really creative camera movement and transitions between shots. I think they were working really hard to do something interesting Mm -hmm. for a kid's show where theoretically you don't really have to do that. (laughs) Talking about the junkyard and them being in the TARDIS. So the teachers find this junkyard. They're trying to find Susan. They can't find her. They think maybe she's in this police box, but they don't know why. And our grumpy old man shows up. (laughs) Our very first Doctor Who, played by William Hartnell.
0: I think we'd better go and fetch a policeman. Hey, Ralph, And you're coming with us. Oh, am I? <laughs> I don't think so, young man. No, I don't think so. What did you think
1: of this version of the doctor? I, I would have expected someone from the
2: 49th century to have learned a little more diplomacy. Very little to endear him, actually. I mean, he just... <laughs> He seemed, I mean, you know understandable when you begin to grasp the situation he's in. He has some legitimate concerns about exposure and all that stuff. But still, he just handled the situation in about as bad a way as he could have, <laughs> short of actually going to fisticuffs.
1: Right. So in addition to being grumpy, he basically doesn't like humans, which is something that changes a lot over the, the series. Ah. Obviously, he's very condescending. So the teachers encounter him. They finally figure out that Susan is in the police box. So they barge their way in. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're the very first actors. This happens to to every character in Doctor Who, where when they enter this police box, they suddenly discover it's actually very large on the inside. And you have to you go through a whole process of explaining that. And once they know that, oh, these are time travelers and there's weird things going on here and, and everything, the doctor decides that they can't be allowed to leave. It is pretty amazing. Again, Kid Show, 1963. The doctor decides to kidnap these people against their will because they can't be allowed to reveal now what they know, which is pretty amazing. Now, I'll say personally, and it's probably just me being a jerk, but this is my favorite version of the doctor (laughs) because I just like how prickly he is. Well, yeah, that's, that's fair. But I also understand, and, and it's one of the big reasons they had to redo this episode and, and rewrite it, it wouldn't have worked. You couldn't have had a story about a person this unlikable and be a kid show and everything else. It, was, it wasn't going to work, so yeah. so they had to redo it. And I don't think uh, William Hartnell, even though he himself was a pretty grumpy, prickly guy, he wasn't particularly <laughs> happy with this portrayal either. Here's a question for you. i just show you how much things have changed in the last half century. How old do you think he was? Just take a guess. Actually, I think I read something about
2: this in between watching it and now. So uh, if I had had to guess, not knowing the answer, I probably would have said maybe early 60s.
1: Yeah, so he was mid-50s. He was like 55. And yeah, you would think 60s, late 60s. And he was already probably ill at that time and didn't know it. And he, he didn't live hugely long. Mm-hmm after all this life has changed right we're almost his age Mm -hmm. we don't look anything like that (laughs) so so, these teachers have gone after this student and they're all stuck in this police box now and through a fight basically the TARDIS takes off and lands somewhere in some unknown location in, in time and this starts off the series let me get
0: this right a thing that looks like a police box stuck in a junkyard, can move anywhere in time and space? Yeah.
1: So with that, as the normal person who has not watched Doctor Who, is this something you would recommend to normal people, or would you want to hold off and and see what the next one is like? Would I recommend it overall? I'd recommend it
2: knowing that it doesn't end up being part of the canon. I'd recommend it as a curiosity, because it was interesting. I enjoyed watching it. But if somebody's really just looking to get the regular Doctor Who experience, I'd say it was skippable.
1: (laughs) Sounds fair. Now, let me ask you, if you were in charge of all this, would you have released this episode or would you have also required them to do it over?
2: Hmm. That would depend on what my vision of Doctor Who was. I mean, if I had gone into it, meaning for him to be an abrasive, mean old man, you know, then I'd say mission accomplished. Let's go. <laughs> you know, but uh, if that wasn't the goal, then I'd probably want to rethink it. Given what you said about not being able to do a lot of cuts, there are some technical things that obviously would have been nice to go back and tinker with but yeah if I wanted him to be a crazy mean old man yeah I'd go with it (laughs) (laughs) okay all four of the main players I I liked all of them Mm -hmm. I thought they all did well in their respective roles one thing I noticed there wasn't a lot of wit in it I mean there (laughs) wasn't a lot of snappy banter you know It's, it's pretty much straightforward science fiction slash drama slash mystery whatever, but not not, uh, not a lot of jokes, which I tend to enjoy shows that have the occasional amusing dialogue and whatnot. But, uh, but that's okay. It's just, yeah, it's just something I observed.
1: The good news is that becomes very much a part of the show as it goes along. So you have some humor coming up, but that that is a good point. Unless I missed it, I think in this debut episode...
2: They didn't actually mention the name Doctor Who, aside from (laughs) the title credits, right? I mean, so you can watch the end to the end of the show and not have any idea what this Doctor Who business is. Right. I mean, you could probably figure out that it's the cranky old guy, but I don't think they ever actually introduced him as anything but the grandfather.
1: That is a key part of Doctor Who history, and the kind of thing that a casual watcher might not notice, but that any serious Doctor Who person understands, which is his name is not Doctor Who. Ah. He is the Doctor. Oh, And the title of the show is kind of a comment on that. I think it's actually really interesting. And you watch the show over decades and people just refer to him as the Doctor. And it gives this sort of mystery to him because it's not like his name is Jim or something. <laughs> Every once in a while... A new director, a new writer or something would work on the show. And they they, they didn't have, back in those days, they didn't do what they call show Bibles right. or the way they do now, right? Where all the rules are laid out. Mm-hmm. So anybody coming onto the show can read them and know what's expected. So back then, some new person would come on. And they might have seen an episode or two. They might have never seen it. They didn't have videotapes to look at or anything. And so they would suddenly refer to him as Doctor Who in the script or whatever, right? Ah. Uh. This slips in every once in a while. And of course, then people like me take to the internet and <laughs> give them a, a thrashing. Okay, well, I think this is a good start. Wow. Happy for anyone who has listened to this if we publish it. And we will be back next time with the true unearthly child. Very good.
0: Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension? Have you? To be exiles? Susan and I are cut off from our own planet without friends or protection. But one day, we shall get back. Yes, one day. The biggest gripe, of course, and one of the biggest tensions was that uh, it was continuous recording and and retakes cost money, um, editing cost money, and we were made very, very aware of this. And at the end of a recording session, when they got to the end of the show, there was a short period to record, uh, to record the retakes and put right anything that had gone wrong. And the order of priority was always the technical mistakes first. Uh, Camera mistakes um, had to be corrected. Uh, then any sound errors would be corrected if there was a, a technical mistake and at the end of the line would be the actors if they'd fluffed a line or made a mistake or dropped their prop or done something wrong or looked a bit stupid or weren't very good then they, they might get a chance but in the main actors didn't get a chance to have a retake because they, they always ran out of recording time and at that time we were so naive that there was no defense I mean, we just had to put up with it and if you fluffed you fluffed and you sat at home watching thinking all those millions of people are watching me fluffing you know it was dreadful as time went by the actors learned that the only way to make sure that you got a retake if you made a mistake or fluffed a line was to say when you finished and then they had to retake it they couldn't possibly put that out and by the time I got into Z cars which was uh, some years later that was the standard thing you would make a mistake sorry and you had to have the retake Then there's no no way out of it